Well, this morning is our final message from the book of Ruth. We're kind of wrapping up our study for this morning. And as you see from your notes, kind of the, the overarching truth of this passage, we kind of pull together as we've been looking through the book of Ruth, is summarized in these final few, few verses that help us to understand that God is king. The message of God being king is not just captured for us in the book of Ruth, but kind of runs its course from start to finish, from Genesis to Revelation, as we see that God is preeminent over all his creation. Not only did he speak it into existence, but it exists to worship him, to glorify him, to please him. That's why the psalmist says in Psalm 19, that the heavens declare the glory of God, that everything in this universe gives testimony to the wonder of who God is, that God is king. And so as we wrap up our study this morning in the book of Ruth, this theme comes right to the forefront again, and, uh, and we're going to see it as we move our way through the passage. I would encourage you, if you haven't already, turn with me to Ruth uh, chapter 4, we're going to be in verses uh, 10 or 11 through 22, through the end of the chapter. Of course, as you would expect, that since the theme of God being king is prevalent from start to finish in the Bible, that Jesus Christ himself, who is God incarnate, when he came to earth, the message that was prominent on his lips was a message about the kingdom of God. That's what you would expect, and that happens to actually be what we, what we find. 130 times, Jesus will either speak about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven through his ministry on earth. Many of the parables that Jesus would give would be captured and, uh, and encapsulated for us, uh, guided from the Savior. This is what the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God will be like. So I've taken one of those parables, Matthew chapter 22, verses 1 to 14, and I've kind of reconstructed it, used a little bit of, of license to create a once-upon-a-time once kind of story. Let me read this for you. Once upon a time, a king prepared a wedding feast for his son. As with any wedding, the preparation took a great deal of time, but when the preparations were complete... He sent his servants to gather those who were invited to the wedding, but they refused to come. So he sent other servants to persuade the guests. They spoke of the great feast that had been prepared, the table that had been set, the venue that was ready for celebration, but they paid no attention. Some continued on with their business, some simply walked away, while others took great offense, seized the servants, beat them, and even killed some of the servants. So the just and righteous king sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned down their city. But the son was still eager to be married, and the wedding preparations were still in place. So the wise king sent his servants again, this time to anyone they could find. They went into the main streets. They went along the way. They went to the gate, and they went from house to house, inviting anyone who would come, both good and evil. Now the wedding hall was filled with guests, and the marriage celebration could begin. 
But when the king came to look at the guest, he saw that there was a man who had no wedding garment. This man had come for the food, had come for the, the event itself, but had no interest in the sun or in celebrating this wedding. So the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot, cast him into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. Jesus will often tell stories about the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God, and he'll establish what the the king and his son will do. And of course, in telling these stories, Jesus is trying to help the people of Israel recognize that there is, a, there is a response that is necessary and based upon your response to the king, there will be consequences, either good or bad. This is one of the many parables that Jesus told and Jesus would come and tell about the kingdom of God. His ministry was so, so punctuated by this that As we've been working through the Gospel of Luke, we've seen that this is a preeminent theme on Jesus' heart and life. So that in Luke chapter 4, verse 43, when Jesus is beginning his public ministry in Galilee, Luke describes his ministry in this way. But he said to them, Jesus speaking, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose, to preach about the kingdom of God. Many chapters later, as Jesus is continuing his ministry, this theme continues to punctuate the life and teaching of our Savior. In Luke chapter 8, verse 1, soon afterwards, speaking of Jesus, he went on through the cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God, and the twelve were with him. So that in the next chapter, when Jesus sends out the twelve, In Luke chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, he called the 12 together. He gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases, and he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And so in the next chapter, when Christ is sending out the 72, what do you expect to see? The same thing. Their ministry is marked by this in chapter 10, verse 9. Jesus instructs them to heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come to you. The heart and soul of the gospel message is a response to the king in understanding the nature of the kingdom. The kingdom of God is a predominant theme throughout the scripture. So it should be no surprise then that the kingdom of God is front and center for us here in this book of Ruth. It happens to actually be one of the first words we encounter in this little book. God is king. Of course, most of us reading our translations would would run right past this word because it's captured in the name Elimelech, Naomi's husband. Twice we find in the very first few verses of Ruth, God is king. Naomi married to Elimelech, whose name is God is king. And it's set against the backdrop of a culture that has resisted God so that in Judges 21, 25, the verse that would precede Ruth in our narrative, we find, in those days there was no king in Israel. In the first verse of Ruth, we find, in the days when judges ruled, there was famine in the land. This truth of God being king 
comes to a crescendo in our final few verses as we, as we look forward and, and the narrator is anticipating this future King David that will come through the, the life of Ruth and Boaz through their son Obed. Twice in these final few verses, the narrator will draw our attention to the, to the, uh, the significance of this future king. Notice in verse 17, And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, speaking of this son, a son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. Why does the narrator draw attention to this again? Well, because God would make a promise to David. And that promise would be of a future son. A future son who would take his throne and reign forever. And of course, that future son is Jesus Christ. Jesus is king. The Lord is king. In our passage today, we're going to see several characteristics of the, of the kingship of Christ. We're going to call attention and, and see as this narrator is describing these events and as the, as the women are coming, the, those who have, who have observed the, the proceedings that have taken place at the gate are celebrating the work of God that is unfolded before their eyes. And they celebrate this work of God, this future king who will be the king over Israel and a king over all. We're going to find this morning that he is the faithful king, that he is the sovereign king, that he's the redeeming king, and he's the loving king. Let's look at these one at a time, beginning in verse 11. God is the faithful king. Notice it says in verse 11 of chapter 4, then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together build up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. Standing at the very beginning of this phrase, may the Lord make this woman. It will happen because of the work of God, the faithfulness of God to carry his plan through. Those who have gathered at the gate erupt in praise to God and prayer for Ruth and Boaz. They equate her or pray that God would make her like Rachel and Leah, who were the wives of Jacob. And we see here at the outset that God is the faithful king, but God was faithful to Jacob. Jacob, his wives, Rachel and Leah. Jacob, of course, was the grandson of Abraham, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God had made specific promises to Abraham about his offspring, about the land, and God had communicated those same promises to Isaac, his son, and then to Jacob, his grandson. He repeated them for us, or for him, in Genesis chapter 28, verses 13 and 14, when he says, Behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father and the God of Isaac, The land on which you lie I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, 
And you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you, your offspring, shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And now the evidence of that promise, those inhabitants of Bethlehem and those inhabitants of the land of Israel are the direct result of the promise of God to be faithful to Jacob. Jacob, by the way, any of you who understand his story, was not what you would call a faithful man. And yet God's faithfulness continued in spite of the faithlessness at times of Jacob. God would turn this small family of 70 members into millions. 70 members who would first make their way to Egypt. And by the way, Before Jacob makes his way to Egypt, understanding the significance of being in the land, this land of promise, asks God for permission in Genesis chapter 46, verses 3 and 4. We find God's answer. God says, I am the God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again, and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. And in God's faithfulness, 70 would go down to Egypt and as many as three to four million would come out of Egypt and into the promised land. And these descendants of Jacob, now living in Bethlehem, erupt in praise because they come to understand again the faithfulness of God to maintain and to keep his promises to such a degree that they ask God to make this foreigner from Moab, from opposing enemy territory, to be like a patriarch among them, just like Rachel and Leah. And the significance of this is is built into the text because these would be descendants of Leah who uh, who was the mother of Judah and yet they put Rachel first in the prominent place, I believe because they understand that God was working through impossibilities. Remember the barrenness of Rachel to accomplish his purposes and Ruth in the same way as a barren woman. God, may you do the same thing for Ruth that you did for Rachel and do the same thing for Ruth that you did for Leah. Establish her home. Extend your promise. Be the faithful God. Continue to be the faithful God. God was faithful to Jacob. But in verse 12, we find that God is also faithful to Judah. Notice they say, And may your house, verse 12, be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this woman. The the women of Bethlehem continue their praise. They recount the faithfulness of God to Jacob and now the faithfulness of God to Judah. Bethlehem, of course, is uh, in the land territory that was allocated to Judah and to his descendants. And these individuals who are witnessing this legal transaction that has happened at the gate are descendants of Judah, and they recognize God's faithfulness to them. They exist because of God's faithfulness to carry out their legacy. Of course, David would come from Bethlehem. David would be from the tribe of Judah These descendants of Judah standing at the gate now praise the Lord for his faithfulness to them. Faithfulness, again, in spite of a faithless father. Any of you who understand or have read the story, the account 
of Judah in Genesis chapter 38 will understand and recognize what a kind of scoundrel he was. Judah, who marries a Canaanite woman and has three sons, Ur and Onan and Shelah. Judah finds a wife for his first son, Ur, who was a Canaanite. Ur was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and so God kills him. She marries Onan. This, uh, this semblance of this kinsman redeemer, the first time we, we see this in the scripture, Tamar will then be given to Onan, who was also wicked. The Lord kills him. And Judah is beginning to get a sneaking suspicion that Tamar is the problem, when in fact, it was the wickedness of his sons that God uh, punished. And so he withholds, Judah withholds, Tamar from his youngest son, Obviously, in Judah's mind, she was the problem. When in fact, the sons were the problem. Judah's decision had the potential of erasing the entire line, the entire genealogy of the tribe of Judah because of his unwillingness to allow his name to be perpetuated through his youngest son. But through a sordid series of events that you can read for yourself in Genesis chapter 38... Judah's wife will die. Tamar will take advantage of Judah's indiscretion. And God will allow Tamar to conceive two twin boys in her womb, Perez and Zerah. In spite of Judah's recklessness, in spite of Judah's indiscretion, in spite of Tamar's barrenness, God maintains his promise. God makes good on his promise. God carries it through because God is faithful. And years later, when Judah and his family find themselves in Egypt, Jacob will pronounce a prophecy over his son Judah in Genesis 49, verses 8 and 10, that goes like this. Judah, your brother shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Judah, the line of the king is coming through you. Regardless of your lack of faithfulness to God, God will carry through this promise. He will see it through. In this town, now seeing all of these pieces come together, They see the barrenness of Ruth and they compare that with the barrenness both of Rachel and also the barrenness of Tamar and they say God can carry through his promise. God will be faithful. He's been faithful in the past. He will continue his promise through Ruth. And 700 years after Tamar, now Ruth and Boaz would be married and continue this line of King David. God was faithful to Jacob. God was faithful to Judah. God was also faithful to Abraham. He was faithful to Abraham. In verse 10, we see as Boaz is recounting the terms of this contract, he says, And Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife. Seven times throughout this little book, we find this designation given to Ruth. It it kind of becomes her identity, kind of the the label that is attached to her. Ruth the Moabite. We see this in chapter 1, verse 22. Ruth the Moabite, the daughter-in-law to Naomi. 
In chapter 2, verse 2, and Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, and on and on we see throughout the account of this little book, Ruth the Moabite, why has the narrator drawn attention to this point? It's because he's emphasizing the faithfulness of God to Abraham. The faithfulness of God that we find from chapter, Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. In you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And here is this outsider. Here is this foreigner that God is now drawing in, not only into Israel, but into the very lineage of his future son, Jesus Christ. So that Jesus, being fully God and fully man, will even in his DNA contain the structures, the DNA structures of foreigners to help establish God's commitment to bring and to draw the nations to himself. And the genealogy is is accredited in Matthew chapter one. Three women stand out. The only three women, actually there are four women who are listed in the genealogy, three of which are outsiders. Rahab, Tamar, and Ruth all outsiders, all not a part of the Jewish lineage to help establish once and for all God's commitment to keep his promise to Abraham. God is a faithful king. We see in verse 13 of chapter 4 that God is a sovereign king. God is a sovereign king. Notice, so Boaz took Ruth, she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. God is sovereign over life and death, as we see here in verse 13. Is there anything surprising about a husband and a wife getting together and having a baby, conceiving? No, you might say. That's what happens when husbands and wives become one flesh. This is natural. It's it's automatic, right? Except for in the case of Ruth. Ruth was married, as you remember, for 10 years. And what we find is in the very latter parts of the book of Ruth, it's, it's bookended by what we see in the beginning of Ruth to establish that God is sovereign over all, that God will carry through his promises and God will accomplish his objectives regardless of the barriers that stand in the way. And of course, in Ruth's case, being barren, God was able to give her conception. The narrator draws this out. And the Lord gave her conception. Even in the things that seemed natural, God is sovereign over those things. Just as he had been for Sarah, who was Abraham's wife, as he had for Rebekah, who was Isaac's wife and barren, just as he had done for, uh, for Rachel, who was Jacob's wife and barren, just as he had done for Tamar, who became Judah's wife and was barren, and just as God would do for Elizabeth, who is Zachariah's wife, and the two of them being the the parents of John the Baptist in the future. God uses even barrenness, the heartache and struggle of not being able to conceive to demonstrate that God is sovereign over life and death. Nothing is automatic This, everything that we get is a gift from God and in fulfillment of the prayer of those who had prayed at the gate in verses 11 and 12, God answers. Pregnancy is given. A miracle takes place. And just as God had given life, at the end, 
we see that God takes life at the beginning of this little book, taking the life of Elimelech, taking the life of Malon and Kilion, because God is demonstrating that he is sovereign over life and death. We also see God's sovereignty throughout this book that God is sovereign over food and famine. God is sovereign over food and famine. Again, at the very beginning of this little book, in Ruth chapter 1, verse 1, in the days when the judges rule, there was famine in the land. As you look at the law in Deuteronomy, you find that famine was just a symptom. It was a, it was a result of the unfaithfulness of the people. It was always a result of their disobedience to God, and God, in trying to draw them back to him, brings the punishment of famine. Just as God was sovereign over the famine, he was sovereign over bringing food. In Ruth 1.6, we see that sovereignty. Naomi arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. God takes the initiative. God gives them food. God is instrumental over food and famine. There's nothing that we can do to change that. God is sovereign over all creation. And there is nothing that we can do to usurp his control. There's nothing that we can do to stand in his way. There's nothing that we can do to ruin the creative work of God in holding all things together. God is sovereign, even over creation. And in a world that's going crazy with climate change, and we wonder if this doomsday clock is about to expire, I want you to understand there is only one person, one creator who holds the doomsday clock and will determine when that end will come. He is the king over all. And in the most cataclysmic event in the history of the world, when Noah and his family come off the ark from the flood, and the world is as fragile as it could be, God establishes to Noah that he is in control. In Genesis chapter 8, verses 21 and 22, Noah has prepared an offering, a sacrifice to God. And it says, When the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. Why? Because God is sovereign over the world. And the patterns and the rhythms that God has established will not be disrupted because God is king over all. So that at the very end of time, this faithfulness of God in establishing these rhythms and patterns will be the very thing that the false prophets refer to to, to suggest that the world will not actually come to an end. So that in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 and 4, these false teachers are forgetting something very important. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last day with scoffing, following their own sinful desires, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Why? Because God is king 
over creation. And the very things that God has done to demonstrate his consistent faithfulness in establishing rhythms over the world, they will see, they will recognize, and they will use as their own means of suggesting, well, then God is not going to come after all. Peter will continue in verses 5 to 7 because there's something they're forgetting. They deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago. The earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world uh, that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly, because God is king over his creation. God is king over all. We see that in Colossians 1, 15 to 17. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Now certainly we need to steward the world, we need to take care as God's subjects, we are give, we've been given the directive by King Jesus to take care of the planet that he has put us on, but make no mistake, we cannot ruin this place because God is holding it together. He is king. We also find that God is king over circumstances. We've alluded to this several times throughout our study from start to finish, this hidden hand of God has been evident from start to finish in the book of Ruth. So that in Ruth chapter 2, verse 3, we find that Ruth goes out and she gleans in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. Oh, really? God's providential, sovereign hand in leading Ruth to the right place at the right time. So God's master plan could unfold. The plan he promised to Jacob, the plan he promised to Judah, the plan he promised to Abraham was going to be fulfilled, and God was going to see it through. There weren't any factors that was going to upturn God's plan. In Ruth chapter 4, verse 1, Boaz says, Now Boaz, he had gone to the gate and sat down, and behold... This word of surprise, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. Oh, really? God's providential, sovereign hand in leading the circumstances of all things to align with his objectives. God is king. God is sovereign, the sovereign king. In chapter 4, verse 14, we see God is the redeeming king. He's the redeeming king. It says, then these women said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord. And, and that's important because they recognize that every good thing that has transpired, that has unfolded in this entire account has happened because of the goodness of God. Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer, Naomi. And may his name be renowned in Israel. This message of redemption has been strong from start to finish in the book of Ruth. 
21 times this word is used. And here's a graphic. This is just to show you on the left-hand side, it's maybe difficult to see the, the yellow. You can see how Ruth stacks up against all the other books of the Old Testament in the, the, the number of times the word redeem or redeemer is used. So that Ruth uses the word redeem about as many times as Leviticus, which has 27 chapters. It uses it more than Psalms, which has 150 chapters. It uses it um, almost as much as Isaiah that has 66 chapters. This message of redemption is punctuated from start to finish. So that on the right-hand side in the blue, you can see how Ruth, the uses of the word redeem, uh, and then um, proportionally with the number of words in the book is demonstrated. Can you, can you see that redemption is a major theme? God is the redeemer. And this book points to the quality of redemption. In chapter four, that helps us see that redemption is not about a self-serving nature, it's about a self-sacrificing nature. And we see this, this virtue of redemption and as with every virtue, the nature of that which is commendable always points to God. True virtue is always derived from God. It's measured by God and points to God. And so when Boaz steps up as this model of redemption, his life is patterned after the Old Testament and, and showcases the wonder of a redeeming God. God is redeemer. But in this little verse here in verse 14, these women are celebrating the work of God in giving a redeemer. And, and what's surprising about this is they're not talking about Boaz as redeemer. They're talking about this little boy, the son as redeemer. How is that possible? It's because they understand that God is the preeminent redeemer. And that God sends these representatives of redemption through Boaz and through this little boy who will, who will help to restore for Naomi what she has been greatly missing. God is the redeemer. Redemption is to buy back, to purchase, to take ownership. God has done that for Naomi and God has allowed that to be available to us. God is the faithful king. God is a sovereign king. He's the redeeming king. And finally, he is the loving king. God is the loving king. Notice in verse 15, it says, He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. In bringing this home from verse 14, Blessed be the Lord. It is the Lord who has brought this, this son to you, who will be a restorer of life, a nourisher of your old age. This word to restore is the word return. It's the word that we saw at the very beginning of this little book to return as Naomi is returning back to Jerusalem and God is going to return to Naomi the things that she feels like she's lacked. 
this posture of repentance and returning back to God has been met with a kind, loving God who is king. Your return, Naomi, your willingness to come back is what has led you to enjoy the benefits of that return and God restoring to you, returning to you all that you feel like you've lost. And a nourisher of your old age, which is to endure, to provide, to supply, to give sustenance. God has given you a son, Naomi, for a grandson, as it were. God has given you a daughter-in-law, Naomi. God has shown you his favor, and God has given you the best thing of all, which has been present from the very beginning. God has given to you himself, Naomi. He's not turned his back on you. He's not abandoned you. He has forgiven you. He has turned your bitter circumstances into joy. He's turned your tragedy into triumph, Naomi, because God is king of kindness. God is uh, a God of loyal, steadfast love. While initially it was concealed because of your pain, the pain of famine, the pain of loss of a husband, the pain of heartbreak of two sons, all the while God's hesed has been clear from start to finish. It was present through Naomi in wishing Hesed, the kindness of God on her daughters-in-law in Ruth chapter one, verse eight. May the Lord deal kindly with you. That's our word. And Boaz, for Naomi and Ruth, as he, as Boaz ascribes the kindness of God, may he be blessed by the Lord, Naomi says, whose kindness has not forsaken the living and the dead. God is demonstrating his kindness to us through Boaz. Boaz's kindness is on display. And in Ruth, her kindness for her mother-in-law that we see in Ruth chapter three, verse 10. May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter, for you have made this kindness greater than the first, that you have not gone after younger men, whether rich or poor. The kindness of God showing up through the kindness of those who follow after him. Because they recognized that God was king. They bowed the knee to his sovereignty and they demonstrated a commitment and faith to believe in the God of kindness. And so they showed through their life that same self-sacrificing overflow of kindness to others. The message of Ruth is that God is king. But who is the king of your life today? Who have you made or what have you made king over your life today? Have you bowed the knee to King Jesus? Have you come to him with a posture of humility and received King Jesus as your savior? That is what is built into the gospel. Notice Paul will say in Romans 10, 9 and 10, he'll put it in these terms. When he says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with a heart one believes and is justified. And with a mouth one confesses and is saved. Woven into the fabric of the gospel is an understanding that in order to have God as Savior, you must make God your king. He must be your Lord. He must be your master. You must bow the knee to King Jesus because if you don't bow the knee to King Jesus here, you will be bowing the knee to King Jesus in heaven. But that will be a bowing in humility and a bowing that will lead to judgment for you. Philippians chapter two, eight to 11 says this. Speaking of Jesus and being found in human form, 
He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is king. He will be worshiped as king. So worship him as king today so that in that future day, your worship won't be a worship of one who will then be judged, but your worship will be of one who then celebrates the sovereign king and is welcomed into heaven. And for those of us who have made Christ king in salvation, does our life reflect a consistent quality of surrender and humility to him as king? Here are some areas I've There are five brief areas where we need to evaluate and examine our life to see, is God king? First, is there sin in your life that you cannot let go of? Is there a sin in your life that you say, God, this one is off limits. This one is my sin. I'm going to enjoy it for a little while longer, hands off. Or is there a a sin in your life that continues to trip you up and you would say that you find yourself a slave of that sin. If you are a slave of sin, you cannot be a slave of righteousness. That's what Romans chapter six says. Make God king. And if you need help, if you need some accountability, if you need some encouragement, can I just say that, uh, that, that those of us in this room who have bowed the knee to King Jesus, every single one of us have wrestled with sin and have found some measure uh, or to, to a degree of victory over that sin and we would love to lead you to victory in overcoming sin. Second, is there a person in your life you cannot forgive? Is there a person in your life you cannot forgive? Jesus will frame it this way in the Lord's Prayer. That if we cannot forgive those people whom we see, how can we forgive, or how will God forgive us? If we can't forgive others, then God will not forgive us. Are you shutting your heart against, out, from uh, receiving the forgiveness of others and pursuing peace with them? Third, is there an activity that keeps getting in the way of your worship? Are there activities or events or hobbies or even enjoyable things that get in the way of the prioritization of God's of worship of God in a consistent way? Make God king. Fourth, is there a burden that you continue to carry? Is there an anxiety that you feel? Is there a pressure that you have? God will say, as king, humble yourself before the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in in due time. Cast your care on him because he cares for you. That's what the king will do for you. You can cast those cares on him. And finally, is there an area of your life you refuse to submit to God? God, you can have everything in my life except that. That is off limits. And I can remember, and I've said this before, a time where I was praying on my couch and I wrestled with the Lord about giving God some of the things that were very valuable to me. 
and saying, God, you can have my family. God, you can have my future. God, you can have my job. It belongs to you, and you can do with it as you will. I trust you. And by the way, that was a very, very difficult prayer to to make. Because somehow we feel like if we give God permission to do something, that God is gonna take that away, that God won't be faithful. And let me just tell you, you know this anyway, that God doesn't need your permission to do what he wants to do. So you may as well give him permission now so you can surrender your heart to his lordship and you can enjoy the benefits of, the, of King Jesus over your life, who is a better king, a loving king, a faithful king, a trustworthy king. You can depend on King Jesus. Give him everything in your life. Oh God, thank you for this story of Ruth. Thank you for the way that you take hard things and turn them into good. God, may we trust you in this way. May we celebrate your work in our lives while we can see it and maybe while we can't because we trust that all things work together for good to those who love him. And doesn't mean that all things are gonna turn out in a way that makes us feel good. But as you use our lives, you are working your glory and your plans out. May we trust you with your plans, which are eternal and better and good. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Have a great day.